This morning, our lesson title was Doing the Right Thing. Doing the Right Thing. We spoke at length about the fact that God's children must do the right thing, whatever that is. We discussed how to find out what that is. One of the ways we discussed was the right thing to do in any given situation is what God's word says to do. God's word is right, even when it hurts, even when you have to stand alone, and there are times that doing the right thing will require that you stand alone. Sometimes where you work, sometimes where you go to school, sometimes in your own families, you will have to stand alone in order to do the right thing. Sadly, in some cases, even in your church family, you see, Christians must do the right thing because that's what sets Christians and faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ apart from everybody else. We must do the right thing as Christians because as we covered this morning, because the Lord is gracious, the Lord is righteous, in all his ways and gracious in all his works. Psalm 145 and verse 17. Therefore, he who practices righteousness is righteous just as God is righteous. 1 John 3, 7. And so, we must do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with us. Deuteronomy 6:18. Three verses we covered this morning with a couple of others thrown in. We must do the right thing because of what it says in Psalm 11. Please open there with me. Please open to Psalm 11. And let's look at verses 4 through 7. We must do the right thing because Psalm 11 in verse 4. Because the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. We talked about that this morning in Deuteronomy 13. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. But here's the punchline for our sermon. Look at verse 7. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Why do the right thing? Verse 7. Because God is righteous, he loves righteousness, and he, his countenance beholds those who are upright. He, he considers, he takes to heart those who are upright. That's why. But as we said this morning, sometimes doing the right thing is really difficult. It can be very hard. Especially if you make every effort to work hard, pay your bills, obey the law, take personal responsibility, treat everybody fairly, give of yourself constantly, and always seek to put others first and, first and to serve them incessantly and sacrificially, and then you see somebody else 
maybe even a member of the church cheating on their taxes, not paying their bills, not obeying the law, refusing to repent when they need to, refusing to take responsibility for their own actions. People who sometimes, sadly, even in the church, seek to take advantage of other people, always put themselves first above everyone else. Those people who seem to think that the world revolves around them and that everybody owes them something instead of the other way around. Sometimes when you see those types of folks and you, you've done the right thing and you keep trying to do the right thing, you, you sit back and you say, wow, you know, some of those folks that just aren't doing the right thing, they're sliding through life. They always seem to have it made. It always seems to work for them. They always seem to have it better and better and better and better and better. I, I don't get it. They always seem to slide through. They always seem to get away with it and come out better on the other end. And they're dishonest. And they're doing a lot of things that aren't right. And, and so, so to look at them, and, and then, I, and then a, as a Christian, you sit over here trying to do the right thing, think, Lord, this ain't fair. There are times when servants of God can look at those other types of people who are not doing the right thing. And they seem to get it all. They seem to have it all. And they seem not to have the struggles that we have while we're trying to do it right. We always seem to be the ones that are having the struggles. Well, I want you to know tonight that if that's the way you've ever felt about anything, doing the right thing's hard, why bother? Look at the ones who don't. Look at what they, what they manage to pull off and get away with. I want, her, want to talk to you tonight and just say that if you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. You're not alone amongst some of God's most faithful people in the Bible. This is a question and an emotion which men such as Job and David, Asaph, and many other righteous and God-fearing men and women struggled with throughout the ages. It's also a question that God answered, especially to Asaph in a way that he never forgot. Now, if you're not familiar with Asaph, tonight we're going to talk about him, and hopefully you'll have a little bit more insight into who he was, why he wrote what he wrote, and the lesson that he learned as it applies to our lesson tonight. According to the Unger's New Bible Dictionary, for those of you that don't know who Asaph is, he was a Levite, a son of Berechiah. He was of the family of Gershom, 1 Chronicles 6.39 and 15.17. He was prominent as a musician, and he was actually appointed by David to preside over the sacred choral services in the Old Testament. Did you know that? David appointed him. Turn to me in your Bibles tonight, and we'll take a look at this man before we take a look at the psalm he wrote. Turn to me to 1 Chronicles 16, would you please? 1 Chronicles 16. Let's look at Asaph. First Chronicles 16, verse 1. David gets the Ark of the Covenant back where it belongs, and I want you to look at what happens. First Chronicles 16, 1. So they brought the Ark of God 
set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. Skip down with me to verse 4. And he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. David is going to appoint some of these Levites to minister before the ark, to praise God. The ark is back where it belongs. Look what it says in verse 5. Asaph, the chief, he's one of the ones David appoints. Next to him, Zechariah, then Jael, Shemaramoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, and Odeb, Obed-Edom. Jael was stringed instruments and harps, but Asaph made music with cymbals. Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, regularly blew the trumpets before the Ark of the Covenant of God. On that day, so, so David, the Ark is back, and David has appointed certain chief musicians to praise and, and lead the Old Testament praise. And look at what the next verse says. On that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. When David wanted this psalm played, he gave it to Asaph. Asaph was a very prominent leader in the choral services. And look at what this psalm said. This is a beautiful psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. We, I preached a sermon a little while ago about those who seek the Lord will find him. And, and David and this group are just singing about seeking the Lord and they're, they're having this incredible celebration of worship. But Asaph is the one to whom this psalm is given to play. Now, the rest of verses 8 through 22 here in 1 Chronicles 16 are also recorded as Psalm 105, verses 1 through 15. But you see Asaph's prominence. You see, in the eyes of David, his prominence. Let me continue with a few notes for those of you who are taking notes as to who Asaph was. The sons of Asaph, again out of the Unger's New Bible Dictionary, are, off, are afterwards mentioned as musicians of the temple in 1 Chronicles 25, 1 and 2, and other places. This office appears to have been made hereditary in the family. Same reference, 1 Chronicles 25, 1 and 2. Asaph was celebrated in later times as a prophet and a seer, 2 Chronicles 29, 30 and Nehemiah 12, 46. Not only was he one of the leaders of worship in the Old Testament, but he was a prophet and a seer. I guess you could consider he was fairly, if you want to put it in these terms, fairly high up in the congregation of God's people at this point in time. The titles of 12 of the Psalms bear his name. Psalm 50, as well as 73 through 83, though in some of these, 74, 75, and 79, the sons of Asaph, rather than Asaph himself, should be understood. Why do I take the time to read all that and establish who he is? Because when you understand who he is, that's going to make his struggle 
with the unrighteous always seeming to get away with it and those who do the right thing not prospering, it's going to make more sense. And so as I read all of that, you stop and think that Asaph was a faithful, dedicated, and celebrated musician. He was also a songwriter. That's what the Psalms were. They were songs. He was a songwriter. He wrote many of the Psalms, or a few of the Psalms. He was also a prophet and a seer. He was a man whom King David saw as worthy of appointing chief choral director or band director for worship. He was also a man who apparently led his family in such a faithful and dedicated way that as you read through the stories of Asaph in the Old Testament, his family followed in his footsteps. They followed in appointment. You know, every congregation has its handful of people whom you would see as leaders. There are those individuals that if I were to be sick, I would call and say, can you fill in for me? There would be those individuals when the song leader's sick that they know they can call on a moment's notice to fill in for them. There are those, those people that, that are just leaders. You know they're leaders in, in a bunch of different ways. Those are the two that come to mind to me because I stand up here before you so often. But what I want you to understand, when David needed somebody like that to lead the psalm, it was Asaph. He was a man of fairly high standing in the religious services and community. And yet even he, as devoted and dedicated a servant of God as he was, even he struggled when he saw how those who refused to do the right thing always seemed to come out so good. When he saw how those who refused to do the right thing always seemed to just have it made, to get away with it. And Asaph put his struggle to try to understand that down in a song. One of the Psalms Asaph wrote about this very thing, how he struggled to understand that doing the right thing didn't get you anywhere, or so it seemed to him, that, that those people that didn't seem to have it made. He, he wrote this into a song, or into a psalm, as it were. Turn to me tonight to the main subject of our sermon. Turn to me to the 73rd Psalm. The 73rd Psalm, as Asaph puts into song how he felt about this. Before we begin reading Psalm 73, I want to read a couple of comments from Brother James Burton Kaufman. When he wrote his commentary on the 73rd Psalm, he entitled part of it, The Problem of the Prosperity of the Wicked, and this is what Brother Kaufman wrote. He said, where is the Christian who has not struggled with this same problem? Righteous people seem pressed down on every hand, often struggling for the very necessities of life, where openly arrogant and wicked unbelievers flaunt their godless lives, sometimes wallowing in wealth and luxury. This psalm addresses that very problem. So let's take a look at the 73rd Psalm. Verse 1. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. I want to stop right there. What Asaph does in the beginning of this psalm, this song, as you, if you will, 
is he puts down the conclusion first. Did you ever watch one of those movies or TV shows where it comes on and it's all action and something happens and then it says three days earlier and it takes you back? Or it says two weeks earlier and it takes you back? That's what Asaph is doing. He's giving you the conclusion first that God is good, truly God is good to Israel to such as are pure in heart. He's putting a conclusion there first. Now he's going to kind of take you back to what led him to say that. Brother Kaufman on verse 1 wrote this. God is not partial to the wicked. However, the opposite of this may appear at times to be true, but it is never the correct view. God's goodness toward the righteous is by no means limited to the present time, but extends throughout eternity. Whatever advantages wickedness may appear to have in this present life is of no consequence whatsoever when considered in light of the eternal rewards and punishments to be meted out on the day of judgment. Verses 2 and 3. Now Asaph is going to show you what brought him to this conclusion. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Asaph, what are you talking about? Verse 3, I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, I almost fell. I almost stumbled and, and fell away from the Lord because I was so envious of the wicked and how they seemed to have it made. Asaph recalls his own temptation to envy the wicked and how it almost, it almost consumed him, it almost overtook him, and he realizes how spiritually fatal, and that's the lesson we gotta get, how spiritually fatal that would have been for him to succumb to that temptation if he did not continue to do the right thing. He said, I almost slipped. Man, I was so envious of them. Verses four and five. This says, this is why. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. And again, they always at least appear on the surface or seem to have it made. They always seem to slide through to come out on top no matter what. That's, that's his point in verses 4 and 5. Verse 6, therefore pride serves as their necklace. Pride serves as their necklace. As I, as I read that verse, I can't, for some reason, I don't know why he came to mind, but he did. How many of you remember the original Mr. T on the A-Team, right? Yeah, okay. When that guy showed up, what was the first thing you saw? All the, the necklace. The necklace showed up before he did, right? Okay. All of that was what defined him. And, and what I read Asaph saying is pride, is, it's the same way. He didn't know Mr. T. I mean, we got a few years here in between. That doesn't work. But, but that's the idea is that their, their, their pride is so, so bold and so predominant. It is what defines them. And they wear it like a necklace, like they're proud of it. But when Asaph describes pride as a necklace here, not only do I think of, of Mr. T, but I think on a biblical level of the New Testament Pharisees. Stop and think about this. Doesn't that pretty well describe the New Testament Pharisees that their pride they wore like a necklace? 
Remember the parable Jesus told about those in Luke 18, 9 through 14, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others? They thought they were better than everybody else. They wore their pride like a necklace. The Pharisees were so proud of themselves, they couldn't hardly stand it. They almost couldn't stand to be in the same room with themselves. They were so proud of themselves. Everybody had to know whenever the Pharisees did a good deed, they would trumpet it. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 1 through 16, and 23, 5 through 7. Asaph is describing people like the Pharisees here. Their pride is like a necklace. But here's the thing with the Pharisees, and here's the thing with those that wear pride like a necklace. If it ain't showy, don't expect them to be involved with it. If it isn't showy, don't expect them to be involved with it. Don't expect the Pharisees to do any of the behind the scenes, no glory, dirty work, or heavy lifting because they were simply not going to do it. If it didn't get them noticed, they were not interested. Matthew 23 and verse 4, what did Jesus say? Do as they say, but not as they do. And he talks about how they won't lift a finger. They're not doing the dirty work. They're above that. They've got too much pride. The Pharisees wore their pride like a necklace. They would take advantage of everyone they possibly could while still trying to look good and religious. Matthew 23, 12 through 14. And Jesus' message at the end of Matthew 23, for those people who wore their pride like a necklace, was, hey, you may think you look pretty good and religious on the outside, but Jesus said, I can see right through you. Matthew 23, 25 through 28. How, can you imagine Mr. T trying to hide his necklaces under his t-shirt? Right? You'd still know they were there, wouldn't, wouldn't you? Well, Jesus still knew the Pharisees' pride was there, no matter how, how well they tried to mask it. You know, outside they looked like whitewashed tombs, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. You know the, you know the, the text. And Asaph is talking about people here like that. And he says, their pride serves as their necklace. Violence, verse 6, covers them like a garment. You know what that means? Violence covers them like a garment. Stop and think about that phrase. That means they're always fighting with somebody. Violence covers them like a garment. They're always in a battle with somebody. They're always fighting with somebody. Probably because that somebody refuses to bow down to them. After all, they think the world revolves around them and they wear their pride like a necklace. They think everybody owes them something. And so when everybody doesn't bow down to that, violence covers them like a garment. Remember when James and John tried to pridefully get the places to the right and left of Jesus? Remember that in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28? So they could show everybody how great and important they were in the kingdom. You remember what Jesus said? Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Verses 26 through 28. What was Jesus' message? You want to be really great in the kingdom? You want to be really something incredible in the church? Then do the dirty work. Do the everyday, low-profile, behind-the-scenes, no-glory work that nobody else wants to do. That was Jesus' message in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. Do the dirty work that nobody else will do. Get your hands dirty. Be a foot washer instead of wanting everybody else to wash your feet. 
Be a servant instead of wanting to be served. Be a giver instead of a taker. Be a supporter instead of a supplanter. Put everybody else ahead of yourself. Always do the right thing for the right reason, even when it hurts, especially when it hurts, and even when nobody else notices. Because despite how good it may seem that those people who don't do the right thing always seem to have it, Asaph is going to soon learn that ceasing to do the right thing is not worth it. That ceasing to do the right thing, no matter how attractive it may seem at the time, is just not going to work in the end. In Psalm 73, Asaph goes on in verse 7. He says it seems as if they always manage to acquire an abundance. Verses 8 and 9, he said they speak arrogantly. It's like they think they own heaven and earth. Verses 10 through 12, he notes how the followers of that path continue to drain the fullest of cups, all the while convincing themselves that God does not know what they're doing. And it seems to be working because they always come out on top. And in view of that, Asaph is just coming to the point where within himself he's saying, why don't I just stop doing the right thing and go along with this? They're doing it, it's working for them. Why don't I just do that? He's tempted to think that doing the right thing is vain. And listen, there may come a point in your life where you think, you know what, doing the right thing's not getting me anywhere here. Seems to be futile, seems to be worthless, seems to be pointless, it's not getting me anywhere. Look at verses 13 and 14. Asaph himself in Psalm 73 says, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. What's the point? And I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. He said, it's pointless for me to keep doing the right thing. He continues on. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. He goes on to say, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. When I thought about how they always seem to get away with it and doing the right thing doesn't get me anywhere, just it didn't make sense. It, there's no sense to that. It, it, it doesn't compute. It doesn't work. It was too painful for me. How, how they always get by. There's a God, right? God is good, right? And, and those people that do good and do right just don't seem to get anywhere. But those who don't, they seem to get everywhere. How is this supposed to work? And Asaph is just ripping himself up here. And he said, I don't understand this until verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Asaph says, when I saw the end result, wow, I got it. I finally got it. What was their end, Asaph, verse 18? He says, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation in a moment. They're utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. He said, I saw the end. 
I saw the end result. I, 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 I was carried away in my mind thinking maybe I should just stop doing the right thing because it ain't worth it. But you know, he says, when I saw the end of the story, Paul Harvey used to talk about the rest of the story. He said, when I saw the end of the story, when, when God gave me a peek into the end of it, how could I have been so, how could I have even thought that kind of thought? How could I have even contemplated that somehow they're better off than I am? How could I even have considered the thought that maybe I ought to stop doing the right thing? When I saw their end, I thought, oh, I can't believe that I thought such a thing. Look what he says, verse 21. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He said, I was so dumb, God. I was so, so foolish to even think such a thought that they're better off than I am once I saw their end. I was like some dumb animal to even consider such foolishness. But then, he says, nevertheless, I am continually with, me, with you. Guess what? Asaph smartened up. <laughs> when Asaph considered the end outcome of both types of life, he realized that, you know what? They don't have it all. They haven't got it made, and they didn't get away with anything when he saw their end. He said, how could I have been so stupid to even think such things? But you know what, God? Nevertheless, even after all that, he says, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Asaph is so grateful that God is patient even when we think dumb things. <laughs> even when we envy the wicked, God is, God is patient. God still wants us. And God will give us a glimpse through his word today and allow us to come home and say, God, I'm so sorry. I was so dumb. Oh, I'm so grateful that I am continually with you, that you hold me by your right hand. I don't ever want to let go of your hand, God. I've seen the end of that, and I don't want that. You'll guide me with your counsel, and afterward, receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon earth that I desire beside you. Hey, Asaph, what happened to all this envy of all those folks who are doing it wrong in heaven everything? He said, I got nothing on earth that I want besides God. Verse 25, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He said, I am not envious of them now. I am not letting go of God. There is nothing on earth that I could gain by being unrighteous that I am willing to trade for God's fingers to even slip out of mine for a split second. I've seen it and I don't want it because I know how this story turns out. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You've destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it's good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? From where he started. That's why he started out with how good God is, because he'd been on this terrible journey. But God was gracious, and God allowed him to see the whole picture. And Asaph was so grateful in the end that all he had was God, because God was everything. You know what? He still is. Now, I wonder as I read that, how much influence King David, a song and psalm writer himself, who actually appointed Asaph to begin with, I wonder how much influence that King David had over the words and sentiments of Psalm 73. 
Now, I can't tell you because the Bible doesn't come right out and say, but we know they had a, a fairly close relationship from what I read earlier. But I wonder how much David had to do with, with Asaph's perspective, especially when I consider that Asaph wrote Psalm 73 and David wrote Psalm 37, which mirrors some of these thoughts. Turn with me to Psalm 37 that David wrote. How you can remember them, very easy. 37 and 73, David and Asaph. Before I begin, we're going to read several excerpts from Psalm 37. Let me just say this. If you've ever been where Asaph was in your thoughts, anywhere near it, any semblance of it, maybe thinking that doing the right thing wasn't worth it in this case, maybe doing the right thing was too costly, maybe it wasn't going to get you where you wanted to be, if you've ever thought any of those things, I want to encourage you with some excerpts tonight from David in Psalm 37 for comparison dealing with why we as God's children must always do the right thing for the right reason and not ever allow Satan to appeal to our foolish pride to get us to envy or imitate those who refuse to do the right thing. Psalm 37. Look what David writes, beginning at verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Don't fret. Don't envy those people who don't do the right thing because they're getting away with something very similar to what Asaph wrote. David wrote this. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither is the green herb. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do the right thing. Look at verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. Don't, don't fret and worry and think that somebody else gets it so much better who's not a Christian. They don't. They don't. What they might have on this earth for through cheating or stealing or lying or whatever it is they're doing, not obeying God, whatever it is you think they may have, when you see the whole picture, you've got it so much better than they can even imagine. That's David's message. Asaph saw the end. Continue with me reading what David says. Verse 7 again. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Don't, don't envy them. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. It's interesting if you go online <laughs> and you look up all the things that stress will do to your body. <laughs> Blood pressure, you, you would be amazed at the list of health problems that too much stress will cause. Stress leads you up. What did God say way back here? He said, look, don't fret. Don't get envious of them. Don't get nervous about when they cease to bring their wicked schemes to pass. 
Don't be angry, forsake wrath, don't fret. It's only going to mess you up. It's only going to cause harm in God's words, verse 8. Look at me in verses 12 through 15. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him. For he sees that his day is coming. We don't have to worry about it, brethren. We, as God's children, have more than anybody else in the universe. Do you understand that? I have an inheritance in heaven. It's got my name on it, reserved, right now, through the blood of Christ. Isn't that awesome? So do you. So do all of us who are Christians. I'll take that beyond the grave. I, I haven't seen the end of that, but, but I'll take that over the end of those who don't obey God, okay? And that's David's message. The Lord laughs at these people. He sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword. They've bent their bow They've to cast down the poor and the needy to slay those who are of upright conduct. Well, where's it going to get them? Verse 15, their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. He upholds those people who do the right thing. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. I am just excited about going to a world where time doesn't pass. I don't know what you've got for vehicle. I don't really care. Please don't take that the wrong way. But you can go out and buy a new $80,000 vehicle if you want. 20 years from now, it's probably going to be sitting in a junkyard somewhere. Time passes. Houses get old, people get old, bodies get old, everything gets older. But I've got an inheritance, if I do the right thing with God, I have got an inheritance that will be forever. I can't even begin to fathom forever, but I want it. These who do the right thing, the days of the upright, verse 18, look at verse 19, they shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they will be satisfied. Look at verse 21. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. You know, it's a lot more sacrificial to be a giver than a taker. To give mercy, to give of your money, to give of your time, to give of your effort. And sometimes we look at those who are wicked and they borrow and they don't repay and it's all about them and we think, man, they're getting away. They're not getting away with anything. Asaph saw the end and he says, wow. God, how could I have envied such folks? For those blessed by God shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. I, I can't, I don't know really how to explain this and get it all across. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When I, when I think of the word delight, I think of ice cream. <laughs> Dairy delight or whatever, you know, your terminology is for down here. But on some of these hot, hot nights in July and August when we're down here and it's 104 degrees in the shade, that good cold ice cream is delightful, isn't it? I mean, it is to me. And, and when I read this, this verse and I think of that and I think of delight, God delights in those people who do the right thing. God delights in you when you obey him. Isn't that awesome? We think of God delighting us, God giving us everything. We are a delight, like a cold treat on a hot day to God when we do the right thing. Though he fall, verse 24, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Isn't it awesome to know that if I do the right thing,
and I don't envy the wicked. When I fall, I won't be utterly cast down because God's going to hold me up. Isn't that awesome? That, that applies to you too. I need that so much in my life. David says in verse 25, I've been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous, or the one who does the right thing, forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. You are a blessing to your family when you are an upright person who does what God wants for you to do. Verses 27 and 8, depart from evil and do good and dwell evermore. For the Lord loves justice. He does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. Couple of others, verses 30 and 31. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. This is the person who does the right thing because God said it's the right thing to do no matter what it costs them. No matter if they're the only one and have to stand alone. This is who that person is. Finally, verses 37 through 40. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright. For the future of that man is peace. I have a future. As long as I do the right thing in God's eyes. And that future is one of peace. At the hand of God. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. Future of the wicked will be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. How awesome it is to know that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble, Psalm 46, 1 and 2. Finally, verse 40 of Psalm 37, the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Folks, the bottom line is this. The whole lesson tonight can be summarized pretty easy. Asaph was a religious man. He was a religious leader of the day in the Old Testament. And yet even he, as one who was entrusted with certain duties by King David himself when the ark was returned, even Asaph, being one of God's people, got to the point where he wondered, man, maybe I'd just be better off to go and live like everybody else and to do things like everybody else is doing it who doesn't obey God. Just He was tempted and he thought that. But when God showed him the end of such folks, he said, God, I was so foolish to think that. But he was still tempted to do it. Bottom line is we must never let Satan convince us, you and me, to envy those who are not Christians. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Simple statement to understand. We must never let Satan tempt you and I or convince you and I to tempt, the to, to tempt us to stop doing the right thing and just go and do the unrighteous stuff because those people seem to have it made. God is watching. God is keeping a record. And God will reward his faithful and humble servants. Even a cup of cold water, as we read this morning, they will not lose their reward. God is watching. And he is delighted when we do the right thing. Because he is righteous. Do the right thing for the right reason. 
and not for your own earthly gain, glory, or personal recognition always. And God will bless it. Don't envy those that don't. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Tonight, if you're here and you've never been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that opportunity is here for you tonight now. Maybe you've done that and you need the prayers of the church. Whatever you need, please come to the front as we stand and as we sing.